Welcome to another episode of Capsule Production Podcast. We will be discussing what is pharmacogenomics? What is a career in this field like? How do you get into this field? We will be answering all of these burning questions with our special guest, Dr. Kelsey Cook. Dr. Cook is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy in the Department of Pharmacotherapy and Translational Research. Her current research interests are in the field of pharmacogenomics and pharmacogenomics and pediatrics. Without further ado, give it up for Dr. Cook. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Capsule Production Podcast. Today I'll be your host, Jovan Lazelle, and I'm here with Dr. Kelsey Cook. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. No, thank you for coming on. Today we're going to be talking about the topic of pharmacogenomics, and I think this is something that's up and coming. It's a very interesting topic and something that a lot of us have definitely heard about at the UF campus. And for some of our listeners that don't go to the UF campus, this is a great opportunity for you to learn about pharmacogenomics. So just to start off, what is pharmacogenomics? So pharmacogenomics is the study of, in, of the impact of genetics on drug response. You know, we know that people respond to medications differently for various different reasons. Um, but over the years, we really started to get a better understanding of how, um, you know, ge- uh, differences in genetics can actually play into those differences in drug response. Definitely. So this is something that you're saying that's more new, you would say, like, how long ago, I guess, would you say this started coming about? If, if you know off the top of your head. I don't really know off the top of my head, um, but I do know it's not quite as new as people think it is. You know, it's probably gotten into the clinical space um, a little bit more recently in terms of just other areas of medicine. But, you know, the research and the idea of this has been around for quite some time. Interesting. Okay, that's something I didn't know. Okay, so with pharmacogenomics, since you kind of touched on the clinical, being applied in clinical practice, which areas of pharmacy do you see pharmacogenomics having a role in? I think something that is really cool about pharmacogenomics is it touches all aspects of clinical pharmacy. Um, There's not just one particular therapeutic area or even kind of clinical setting that pharmacogenomics is limited to, you can apply this in so many different ways across so many different therapeutic areas and um, various clinical settings. Okay. So just to give an example, let's just talk about industry. How do you see it playing a role in the pharmaceutical industry? So when I think of industry, I typically think more of like, you know, drug development. Mm -hmm. Um, Think about a study where you're trying to show the efficacy of a drug. If you don't understand what potential genetic implications could be involved in this drug response, you might actually miss identifying a patient population that responds well to that medication. Or on the flip side, you might have you know, some subgroup of your patient population that's having an adverse reaction that you weren't really anticipating. Um, and you, know, you could always look at it and say, is there some genetic component um, that could be contributing to this? So even in you know, drug development or drug design, it's important to now have a better understanding of how genetics could play a role in drug response. And then what what would you say about in the hospital setting? Um, So in the hospital setting, you know, anywhere medications are really just being used, we have the potential to um, incorporate pharmacogenomic data. Um, Like I said, you know, this doesn't really target one particular clinical specialty because it's more just like these drug gene pairs that we focus on. And some of them are drugs that we see that are more used in the hospital setting, something like voriconazole 
know, it's an antifungal that's used for really invasive um, fungal infections. It's only administered IV, so that's something that's gonna be administered in the hospital setting versus some of these other drugs um, that are you know, more administered in outpatient or chronic setting. Okay, and then in which disease states, I guess, would you say that this, that pharmacogenomics currently plays a role in? Um, so there's a wide variety of disease states. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more, I guess, focused on the ones that are ready for clinical implementation since, you know, my job is really focusing on the clinical implementation. So the drug being pairs that have the highest level of evidence to actually implement and start making clinical recommendations. Um, we see quite a few of them in psychiatry. So some of our antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, some of the antipsychotics as well. There are some drugs within gastroenterology, like the PPIs. I think the new CPIC guidelines um, for those are actually going to come out um, very soon. Um, on Gansetron, so an anti-emetic drug. Some of our opioids, so things that we use for pain management, whether it's you know chronic pain, acute pain, that's another big one. Okay, so basically to, to everybody listening, anybody that's interested in, in a career that involves with pain and mental health, this would probably play a role in. So this is something that- oh, Yeah, definitely. I think you know with the way this is evolving, um, if you're gonna become a specialist in you know, anything that's dealing with opioids or just um, like you said, mental health, pharmacogenomics is probably gonna, you know, hopefully at some point be considered standard of care for those therapeutic areas. Got it. And then can you kind of talk, talk to us about what you do? Yeah. Um, so I have a pretty unique role in that I have a split position between the University of Florida College of Pharmacy as a clinical assistant professor, and then I'm a clinical pharmacogenomics specialist with Nemours Children's Specialty Care. Um, so it's pretty cool. I get to do a lot of different things on my day-to-day -day because I have that academic component to my job. Um, so I I'm the facilitator for the 2PD skills lab, so I get to work with students in that aspect, but I am also working on developing a fourth year APPE rotation in clinical pharmacogenomics, so really? I'll work with students in that aspect as well. Um, and then I do some topic discussions, you know, for the other APPE students with the established rotation that they offer in Gainesville. Um, another component to my, like that academic side of my career is being involved in, you know, research and scholarship. Um, so, um, so Nemours, is kind of like a sub-affiliation of University of Florida in this um, IGNITE network. So IGNITE is implementing genomics in practice. And so it's um, this multi-site group that's working together um, on different research projects to get pharmacogenomics implemented clinically. And um, the MORS is the main pediatric site for um, this trial that's going to be looking at um, pharmacogenomic guided versus standard of care recommendations for um, depression and acute pain. The trial in general is also going to be looking at chronic pain, but we don't really use opioids in chronic pain for children. So um, we're not going to be enrolling pediatric patients into the chronic pain arm of the trial. Okay. And will they be doing trials like in other locations with adults that maybe include? Yeah. So this is a multi-site trial. Um, a bunch of different groups across the country are involved. So primarily adult patients, um, but we do have a couple of sites enrolling pediatric patients, which is awesome because um, that's a huge gap in the literature right now is we're just, you know, really lacking on pediatric data. And that's why I think your job is really interesting because one pediatrics is already a niche field. And then mm -hmm. now you're doing pharmacogenomics, which is probably even more niche. 
<laughs> and yeah. it's like you're combining the two. So I feel like you're, you're in a special area. Yeah. And I think that's, again, you know, kind of goes back to that whole idea that pharmacogenomics really spans different clinical specialties um, and settings. It also spans different patient populations. So, you know, these gene areas that have the highest level of evidence make up some of the most commonly prescribed medications across all sorts of patient populations. So, um, you know, someone who's interested in pharmacogenomics can decide sort of what patient population they want to work with within pharmacogenomics. You're not really limited to like just an adult patient population. It's nice that you say that because I think a, a lot of us that are coming up and graduating that are going out into practice, whether we do residencies or fellowships, one of the things that we're into is the ability to apply our clinical knowledge in different avenues, like not just be kind of tailored to one specific thing. So it's nice to know that you could probably go out and get a career in pharmacogenomics, but you could work with in multiple different settings. So you could be working with pediatrics. You could also work with adults. You could probably maybe be focused on more of a mental health aspect or maybe more on a pain. And then now that you also mentioned PPI, so maybe heartburn and GERD, that could be other disease states that are more implemented in that practice. And who knows what the future also holds with some future medications that could be made. Yeah, as the research is progressing, you know, we're implementing more and more drug gene pairs, and it's just really spanning a wide variety of clinical specialties. Um, and so it's nice that I still get to use sort of like all of my um, clinical skills and the things that I've learned throughout, you know, pharmacy and residency training, and I'm not just limited to one therapeutic area. Definitely, definitely. I like, I like the sound of that. So what about the Nemour side? I know that you said that's more of your clinical application that, that you'll be using in pharmacogenomics rather than teaching at the UF college. Yeah, so um, kind of the primary focus of my job is working to implement a clinical pharmacogenomics service kind of across the Nemours healthcare system. Um, but I'm, you know, primarily focused on the Jacksonville Specialty Care Clinic and then we'll eventually expand to the Orlando hospital that they have. And so that is just my favorite thing to work on. Um, so we launched this clinical service in, in February up in Delaware. Um, so about a year before I started, another clinical pharmacogenomics specialist started up in Delaware and started thinking about sort of what this service might look like. And he spent a lot of time figuring out what genes we're actually going to test on our pharmacogenomics panel. So they've developed this in-house testing panel so we can do the testing at Nemours. We don't have to send samples out to anywhere else. Um, so we got to kind of handpick which genes were going to be on this panel. Um, and that was validated probably a couple months after I started working there. And then the rest of the work was focusing on how do we like actually make this work in practice? Um, you know, we're taking this new clinical service and we're trying to kind of intertwine it into already established clinical workflows that different positions or different clinics might have. Um, so we have to figure out things like, how do you order the test? Um, once the test is ordered, what happens? We decided to kind of explore this like prior authorization process to help with um, testing reimbursement coverage for the panel test itself. So we incorporated that into the workflow to kind of see how it would happen. That involves like an engaging an entire um, team of people that are sort of kind of the insurance authorization specialists. Um, we get that insurance, you know, approval or denial back. And the patient goes forward with the testing. You know, what happens with the results? Do we figure out how those results get stored in the electronic health record? How do the physicians access the results? Um, how do we? you know, provide the interpretations and the recommendations to both the clinician and the patient. 
we do a lot of patient education, you know, telling them about what pharmacogenomics is, kind of what it can and can't do, the risks, the limits, the benefits, um, help them kind of make a decision about whether or not this testing would really even be beneficial for them. Because sometimes, you know, patients come or get referred to us with certain medication issues that pharmacogenomics just can't really help with. Like maybe it's um, like a patient with ADHD and we're looking at different medication options for them. And there's only one good drug gene pair uh, for ADHD. And it's not even a medication that's used that frequently anymore. Um, it's atomoxetine. And so patients who are sort of in more of their like first line therapies for ADHD, you know, pharmacogenomic testing isn't really going to help by providing them any additional information to help guide therapy. Um, so in those cases, we can recommend actually against pharmacogenomic testing. There's also like, a really large informatics component to this job. Um, so a big thing with pharmacogenomics is the use of clinical decision support. So when a provider orders a drug that has some sort of interaction with a patient's genetic information, we build these alerts that fire and basically say, hey, um, you know, there's this drug gene interaction, here's a little bit of information about it, and here's some alternative recommendations. So that way the provider, one, knows that the patient has pharmacogenomic results, and two, knows that there's some sort of um, concern about the medication that they're about to prescribe. Um, so we spend a lot of time um, developing these clinical decision support alerts and sort of tweaking them and um, making sure that they're working appropriately. So, we, you know, we get to do a lot of different things, you know, informatics side, patient provider education, working on clinical workflows and just figuring out how to optimize the service. I think that's probably the best part. And so it sounds like your day-to-day -day is just never the same. No, it's never the same. So we have lots of kind of um, long-term projects, short-term projects. You know, I get that teaching mix that I get to throw in there. Um, and then right now my actual, you know, clinical work in terms of interacting with patients is really low just because the pharmacogenomic service hasn't really launched in Florida. Um, we're still working on some of the logistics to get that going, hopefully in the next month or so. Uh, but then once that is up and running, I'll get some um, you know, patient consults and more patient interaction as well. Yeah, you know, no two days are ever the same. You mentioned earlier that, that one, of your job, one of your roles in your job is to kind of see where pharmacogenomics should be implemented in the hospital. So have you found a couple places within the Moors that you felt pharmacogenomics could play a, a significant role in? And if you're allowed to share it, if not, that's fine. We can go to another question. Um, I think we're still kind of working on identifying which patients are probably the best to target for pharmacogenomics. A lot of it, you know, it's, it really depends on these drug gene pairs. Um, so in terms of like the inpatient side, um, some of the drugs, kind of like I mentioned before, voriconazole, something that's going to be used on the inpatient side. Um, one of the harder parts about implementing on the inpatient side is the turnaround time for the testing. Uh, so if we do the test and they're wanting to prescribe some sort of medication, you know, that same day, we're not going to have the results back soon enough to do any sort of, or to make any sort of recommendation based on pharmacogenomics. Um, so it seems like, you know, this lends itself a little bit better to the outpatient setting um, and some of more like the chronic medications that patients are taking. Okay. So AMCARE clinics? Yeah, so we, I think we see a, a lot more utilization in ambulatory care clinics. Okay. Um, the nature of the medications that are being used, typically it's more of these chronic medications. 
Um, but one of the challenges that we need to figure out is, you know, how can we improve the testing turnaround time? Or ideally, you know, the patients would have pharmacogenomic results before they even wind up in the hospital. You know, if we knew that they were going to be admitted for surgery and need some sort of post-op pain management, we would want to do pharmacogenomic testing before that surgery happens, before there's a need for those medications, so that we have that information available when it's time to prescribe opioids. Got it. Got it. Would you say that that is something that would probably need more insurance involvement in order to get it already made? Because I feel if, if, like you said, if we could already have testing, maybe when we're younger or maybe when we're, you know, if, if you're in a children's hospital when you're young or when you're older as a, as a patient, I don't know if it'll be every 10 years, whatever the case may be, but go ahead and do certain types of tests and you have it on file on your record almost like um, on your electronic health record. So that way they already know what to give you when you, if something were to occur, if you need a surgery and give which opioid and stuff like that. Is that where you kind right. of? Yes. Yeah, so that's really the ideal um, scenario is to have more of this preemptive testing so that the information is just there when we need it and it's ready to be used. And it would you know, be great if some, at some point we could identify like at what age um, does pharmacogenomic testing make sense because after this age, you know, they're likely to be on these medications. Um, so there are some people that are looking at sort of kind of ideal timing, probably in older patient populations. I don't know about pediatrics, okay. um, but I think that would be the sort of a good thing to figure out. Got it. And then you mentioned that you kind of have a special role because you're also teaching. So for some of the people that work in pharmacogenomics that don't teach, would they, do they have similar jobs to you or do they, are there just like other roles, like you mentioned earlier, like research, they're just more focused on research rather than implementing and doing clinical decision alerts and stuff like that? Um, so it really just depends, I think, on individual interests. There are a lot of different ways that you can go with pharmacogenomics. You can have a purely research job, but even if you're doing or you're focusing mostly on research, there are different types of research that you could focus on. Um, you could be doing more like um, kind of like signal discovery, figuring out like what sort of um, genetic variations are associated with different drug responses, all the way up to sort of this clinical implementation side of how do we get this into the clinic in the best way possible and optimize patient care. So there's really like a wide variety of even just the types of research that you could be doing, or you can go just purely the clinical route. So like that pharmacist that I work with who's in Delaware is, you know, purely clinic focused and doesn't have necessarily like a required research component to his job, even though he's, go, you know, just naturally with the state of pharmacogenomics and it being a newer thing, I think that you really can't get away from, you know, any sort of research within this field um, because we're doing new things and we need to tell people about what we're doing. Uh, but there's definitely a wide variety of options within pharmacogenomics, just different career paths. And I think um, a lot of flexibility to figure out what it is that you're interested in, in doing pharmacogenomics, and then kind of taking off with that as a career. Okay, thank you for that. And then you also mentioned the turnaround time for the testing. How, about how long does it take to get results? So it's a kind of more complicated question um, than you would think. So okay. the actual like lab time to get the test done is probably like two, three days. What um, we're running into as a big issue at Nemours is the insurance reimbursement aspect of it. So we're wanting to submit like a prior authorization request to get insurance um, approval before we run the test. 
And that overall decision and that entire process, especially if there's a, um, an appeal or a peer to peer peer involved in that um, process can take like six to eight weeks. Wow. So, yeah, so definitely not ideal. Um, especially, I mean, if the patient's inpatient, you're not worrying about things like that and the billing for the test is a little bit different. Um, but because, you know, like I said, these are more chronic medications, we typically see these tests being done in more of an outpatient setting. Um, and so that's just a huge, huge challenge has been um, insurance reimbursement for the test itself, because a lot of companies will still consider it like investigational or experimental or just, you know, not medically necessary. Um, and they have pretty strict guidelines against it, but we have seen some really good steps um, towards better insurance reimbursement, at least in certain clinical scenarios. And so I think that's something that will just continue to improve and expand over time. Just probably not as fast as we want it to happen. As far as the, you did say that it takes about six, six to eight weeks for the prior authorization to sometimes get approved. And the testing takes about two to three days. Mm -hmm. so with that, do you see testing being able to be shortened to less than two to three days? Or do you think that's something that will probably always be two to three days? I think, it, you know, as technology progresses, it'll probably get faster. There are certain scenarios um, or certain platforms where the testing results can come back in like a couple hours. Um, so it really just depends on sort of what you're looking at. Okay. The testing you're using. Okay. Thank you for that. And then, so let's look at it from the fourth year student perspective. So you're in your third year, you have to rank rotations and stuff like that. So you're probably thinking about maybe ranking pharmacogenomics and what kind of advice would you give to a third year student that's thinking about going into pharmacogenomics about maybe some rotations that might be helpful that they can use to learn about it and what they could kind of do to set themselves up for a residency or fellowship. So I think anyone who has, you know, some sort of interest in getting into pharmacogenomics should definitely take advantage of an APPE rotation if that's something that's offered to them. Um, that being said, I know that, you know, not everybody gets that rotation or not everyone even has that opportunity for that type of a rotation. So there are probably ways that you um, can incorporate pharmacogenomics into other rotations. So what I would recommend is, you know, asking your preceptors um, about who gets to assign topics that you either present on or discuss. I think if you let your preceptors know up front that that's an interest of yours and you'd really appreciate, you know, bringing pharmacogenomics topics into discussions, um, most preceptors would probably be open to that. You know, if you have to do a journal club presentation um, in a cardiology rotation, maybe you can do something on clopidogrel and CYP2C19. So, you know, there are other ways to bring pharmacogenomics into other rotations, um, but making sure that that's okay with your preceptor because they probably have other, you know, topics and plans and things that they want to make sure get covered. So bringing in pharmacogenomics topics could end up, you know, being a little bit extra work, but if that's something you're really interested in, it's definitely um, worth pursuing. I think you could also think about the types of rotations that you're doing as a student. Um, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about ambulatory care and how, that seems to be a you know, big component of pharmacogenomics right now just because of the medications that are being used. So having an ambulatory care experience, um, you know, no matter what type of disease state it's in, just having that ambulatory care experience to work on like those types of patient interactions because it's really different than working with a patient in the hospital or working with a patient in the community pharmacy. Um, so just, you know, how do you 
interview and talk to a patient in the ambulatory care setting to get the information that you need and then also come up with some sort of therapeutic plan or recommendation pretty much on the spot because that patient's in clinic that day and um, you have to figure out you know what's going to be the next step for them so that's always just a good experience to have no matter what type of clinical um, specialty it's in definitely and then what about people that are pursuing a residency is there any specific types of residencies that you would recommend? Because I know since we've been on the topic of AmCare, I've realized that there's been a couple of PGY1s that are more AmCare focused now rather than having to wait until doing a PGY2 to get that type of AmCare focus. So would you recommend that or kind of doing more of a general PGY1? With that, it kind of more depends on what your interests are. Um, I would probably recommend a PGY1 that's just going to offer a wide variety of opportunities. Um, so I know that the PGY1 I did, I chose it because it offered me rotations in a wide variety of clinical specialties, but it also offered, you know, some inpatient and outpatient settings. It offered a couple pediatrics rotations. So I just got a little taste of everything. And I knew that, you know, if I did, you know, if I went into pharmacogenomics, there was the potential to work with pediatric patients. Um, so I wanted to get just a wide variety of experiences so that I would have some, at least, you know, minimal foundation to work on in the future. Um, I'd also look for maybe someplace that has an informatics rotation. I did an informatics rotation as a PGY1, and that was incredibly helpful. Um, and that's not something that a lot of places might be able to offer. And so that was, you know, something that I would look for. Um, but kind of like talking about incorporating pharmacogenomics into non-pharmacogenomics APPE rotations, I think the, th the same thing can be said about a PGY1 residency. I um, you know, where I did my residency, there was no pharmacogenomics at all, uh, but I did a clopidogrel and CYP2C19 grand rounds presentation. So that way I was able to still incorporate that into my residency. And then, you know, anyone who's thinking about pharmacogenomics, especially sort of in the clinical space, pursuing, you know, that PGY2 and clinical pharmacogenomics is definitely um, a great way to go. And it's, you know, kind of unfortunate. There's only a couple of training programs that offer those right now, but we are at least seeing that grow. And, you know, hopefully I one day want to be able to maybe offer residency at Nemours. So I think that'll be awesome because that's something that, like you said, it's opening. I don't remember if it's four or five residencies that they have right now. I want to say it's less than 10 for sure. Yeah. So it's definitely just a handful. Mm -hmm. Um, pretty limited to get that type of training. Uh, so hopefully we'll continue to see more programs add that specialty to their PGY2 list. Definitely, definitely. And do you see a fellowship playing a role in, in this career at all? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So like before, there's really, you know, you probably can't completely get away from research and pharmacogenomics because it's new and, you know, that's just, it kind of is second nature as part of this job. Um, or, you know, people who want to pursue that stronger um, research pathway, fellowship is definitely a great opportunity to get more training um, in the research setting. We definitely have people within pharmacogenomics who do both um, residency and fellowship. It really just depends on what your interests are, what your career goals are. Um, and I think even those who pursue fellowship and more of that research type training, a residency never hurts because just having a little bit um, stronger clinical foundation or being able to experience the clinical application like more than just, you know, a couple rotations as a fourth year student um, will probably enhance the quality of the research that you're able to do in the future. 
Thank you for that. And what do you find the most rewarding when it comes to pharmacogenomics? I think there's maybe two big things that I find really rewarding about this job. Um, the first one is being able to help patients. You know, even though my patient experience at Nemours is pretty minimal right now because we just don't have that clinical service up and running. Um, thinking back to my PGY2 at UF, um, being able to help some of the patients that we saw was just really incredible. You know, we get these patients who have these complicated backstories of medications that haven't worked for them or they've had, you know, significant side effects and just can't figure out what's going on. They don't know what to try next or maybe they're afraid to try another medication because they've had so many um, issues with side effects. Being able to explain some of their past history by um, revealing their pharmacogenetic results is just awesome. You know, we give them this kind of peace of mind. It helps them feel better about trying new medication because we know that their risk for side effects, at least based on their pharmacogenetics, shouldn't be um, increased. And so it's just, it's really great to see these patients, um, you know, get to know a little bit more about themselves and have a little bit more of an explanation about kind of what's been happening, um, but then also have um, more information to be more empowered about the medications they use in the future. And then the second part, I think, is um, the problem-solving skills that I get to use. I enjoy a challenge, and, you know, from some of these things that we have to figure out in terms of workflow and implementing these new processes, um, it's really fun to just tackle these challenges that we don't necessarily know what the best answer is to how to overcome them. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say it's almost like you're trying to put the pieces of a puzzle together and figure it out without even looking at the box. You know, it's, it's challenging. There's bits and pieces that you're getting from the patient. There's bits and pieces looking at the patient history. But at the end of the day, it's like you're the last person. You're like the last resort. And then when you're able to solve it, it's probably very, very rewarding. And not only for you, but also for the patient because they've been suffering for however long. And it's like finally someone's able to help them. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a great way to think about it. On the flip side, though, you still have some patients where, you know, their pharmacogenomics, uh, their results, like, don't reveal anything that's really that helpful. Um, but at the same time, that's one more thing that you can say, well, this isn't the issue, so maybe there's something else that we can look at. And then what would you say is the least rewarding about this profession? Um, the frustration of dealing with the lack of insurance reimbursement. Mm. Um, you know, I think it's been probably one of the biggest barriers for widespread adoption of pharmacogenetic testing is just, you know, nobody wants to pay for it. Um, in the realm of genetic testing, it's actually pretty inexpensive compared to what some other genetic tests will cost. But I still, you know, I wish insurance companies would see the benefit and we're doing everything we can to show them the benefit um, in order to get them to pay for this so that we're able to provide it for more and more patients. And why do you think they're so reluctant? I think it's just something that's still fairly new. The data, you know, showing kind of widespread efficacy is still fairly limited. And so that's kind of what we're working on to address. And those kinds of studies and things just take time to show that benefit. And then you also mentioned the cost. How much does it cost if you don't have insurance? So it really depends on where you're getting the test done. There are some places that are able to offer sort of sliding scales based on um, household income. So in those cases, it might be zero dollars. Um, probably the most expensive one I've heard of about you know four to six hundred dollars. 
Um, ideally, we aim for about a $200 mark, seems to be the most reasonable in terms of what patients are willing to pay. Um, but I think in a perfect world, it would be free and everyone would have access to it. Definitely. I mean, that would be lovely. That's something that I would personally like to be able to do. And that's why I was going to ask you, is it possible for people that just want to get a pharmacogenomic test to get it done? I think you have to be a little bit careful about that. Um, there are some companies that are doing the direct-to-consumer pharmacogenetic testing, um, but there are definitely a few concerns about the you know tests that they're offering. And I think it's also, um, it's a little bit, I don't quite want to say dangerous, but maybe dangerous to be providing this information directly to the patient without a healthcare provider who can help them interpret the information. Um, sometimes there are reports that are, will say things like, you know, don't take these medications when in reality there are certain scenarios or settings where it's appropriate and necessary for those medications to be used. Um, so I think it's just, it needs that healthcare provider um, interpretation and, you know, to make sure that the patient understands the information and can use it appropriately. Yeah, that's a good point. I hear that a lot in the pharmacy that patients will just Google something and then they use a product wrong or they do something they're not supposed to do just because they didn't, ha they didn't discuss it with, with the healthcare professional, whether it's a pharmacist or a doctor or a nurse, whichever case it may be. So that is a good point about how that could affect um, people that just wanted to go ahead and take a test because they'll take it and maybe it says, you know, don't take omeprazole. And it's like, maybe you could, you know, and it's just different ways to get affected if you're taking PPIs and other medications as well. And then lastly, in an ideal world, how do you envision pharmacogenomics playing a role in pharmacy practice? So in a perfect world, I think anybody who is going to take any sort of medication um, would have, you know, pharmacogenomic data available, especially because we know that these drug gene pairs that have the highest level of evidence are the most commonly used medications across the country. Um, so it would just be fantastic if this information was available early on in someone's life so that if and when they are prescribed one of these medications, um, that information is just there to be used. And then, you know, along with that is insurance companies are willing to pay for the testing so that the patients don't have to pay for it out of pocket, or we don't always have to just secure um, some sort of research funding to cover the cost of the test. You know, pharmacogenomic testing isn't considered standard of care in most scenarios just yet, um, because it is a little bit newer. you know, it's not um, widely adopted into other guidelines outside of, you know, just the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium or CPIC guidelines that are being created. There are a few scenarios um, like TPMT testing for mercaptocurine use in ALL patients where it is pretty standard of care, but for the most part, it's not. There's a difference between standard of care and best practices. You know, if we know better, we should do better. Um, so for someone like me who, you know, is a strong um, advocate for pharmacogenomics, I just kind of say, like, how can we not do this if we know that it impacts care? So I an ideal world, you know, and I will, I will probably get there someday, maybe not as soon as we like, but I think in an ideal world, pharmacogenomic testing across the board would just be considered standard of care. And since you do have experience in it, since you're working in this profession, how soon would you say that you feel that it's probably going to be more involved in practice and insurances will be more involved with it as well, or okay with it, I should say? 
You know, I really don't know on that. Um, it could be five years, 10 years, 20 years. Um, it really just depends on, I think some of these big clinical trials that are going on or will be starting soon, if we can get some good data, I think that might help with the adoption a little bit quicker. Um, and maybe in certain therapeutic areas, we'll see the adoption a little bit quicker. So like some of the insurance companies that are starting to cover pharmacogenomic testing, it seems a little bit geared towards um, mental health. So maybe that'll become standard of care sooner in regards to mental health than, it, um, than some other areas. But, you know, I think that's just, that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, I would hope five to 10 years, but I'll deal. You know, for a true widespread standard of care adoption, I'm sure it'll take a little bit longer than that. Okay. Yeah. And that's another thing that I didn't think about with right now. I, I don't know how true this is, but I remember seeing something that, that mentioned that because of COVID-19, that the amount of patients on, or the amount of patients that have reached out to therapists or different like helplines as for mental health has doubled. It's been more than a, I believe a two-time increase than it was for like the whole year last year. And we're not even done with this year. And so we could potentially see maybe more patients on these medications and to be able to have this already prepared, you know, up and going would be something that I think would be beneficial going forward for, especially people, my generation and up and coming generations as well. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, definitely some uncertain things going on right now. Um, we'll just have to see sort of what the impact is. Um, we talked about you know, some of the different training opportunities and really focused in on fellowship and residency. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I don't think we touched on is what can people do who maybe didn't do residency or didn't do fellowship training, or since those spots can be kind of limited, what can you do if you don't match to a residency program? Or maybe you're interested in pharmacogenomics, but your whole career isn't going to be centered around it. Um, there are different pharmacogenomic like certificate programs out there that, um, could be a great option for someone who just wants a little bit more training, you know, or even if you just want to see if it's something you're interested in. And so UF actually is going to be launching a new um, clinical implementation of pharmacogenomics certificate program, uh, I think towards the end of this summer, um, that's really geared towards uh, pharmacists. So anybody, you know, who's looking for more training in that aspect, um, that's going to provide some really great, you know, clinical application type courses, and um, a lot of good information about actually implementing a clinical pharmacogenomic service. That's interesting. Thank you for that. So definitely, there's multiple different things that you could do, as, as you mentioned before, um, that we have coming up as far as rotations. We definitely have a rotation right now in Gainesville in pharmacogenomics, and hopefully in the future, Dr. Cook will be able to create one in Jacksonville. And I believe you are mentioning earlier that it could possibly be virtual. Yeah, so we're, we're exploring the possibility of having a completely virtual rotation, um, and so hopefully that will work out. And so if that's the case, you know, may, there might potentially be the um, opportunity to take at least UF students who are not located in Jacksonville and maybe someday expand um, outside of the University of Florida. So basically, no matter what, if you're interested in pharmacogenomics, there will be more opportunities out there for you. So we have going to be hopefully another rotation so multiple rotations there's a couple of a handful of residencies that you can do fellowships and also a soon-to-be certificate that you can do if you don't plan on practicing full-time but it's just something that you find really interesting 
And maybe, you know, you do retailer or you do whatever you want to do um, in industry or in research or in the hospital setting. And you do that for a little bit and then you go ahead and get a licensure and maybe you find yourself a career in pharmacogenomics. So there's a lot of different avenues. You're going to work with mainly um, mental health and also pain meds, but there's also going to be other medications that, that pharmacogenomics plays a role in. And at the end of the day, it's a career that it's definitely up and coming. It's something that's new and it's something that you're really going to be able to help a patient population that has probably tried multiple different things and it didn't work out. And at the end of the day, that's one of the reasons that we all want to become pharmacists because we care about patients and we want to help them. We want to help them live a longer life and a healthier life. And that's something that we'll be able to do going forward with pharmacogenomics. And that's something that if anybody's interested, I definitely, definitely think you should pursue. And then also reach out to Dr. Kelsey Cook. Did you, did you have any last words you wanted to say? No, I think you summed it up pretty good. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Capsule Production Podcast. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to follow us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram at Capsule Production and also on Facebook at Capsule Production. And as always, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for new episodes. Until next time.